Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. And now, here is your host, the lovely, delightful, insightful, and all-around great gal, Ms. Barbara DeLong. We have Ken Quiethawk to thank for that intro. His voice never ceases to amaze or move me. Uh, welcome to Nightlight, everybody. This is, this is Barb, and I have my guest today, Ellen Tad. She is an internationally known clairvoyant counselor who has been teaching and counseling for more than 40 years. She's widely respected for the integrity of her work, the accuracy of her perceptions and guidance, and the clarity and usefulness of her teaching. Her work has been supported by the Edgar Casey Foundation, the Marion Institute, Deepak Chopra, Child Spirit Institute, and the Institute of Noetic Sciences and the Boston Center for Adult Education, among others. Her work has been covered in Newsweek, and she has lectured across the country at colleges, universities, hospitals, and community groups. She's written several books. We're going to be talking about, I think, her latest book. It's called The Infinite View, A Guidebook for Life on Earth. It can be found on Amazon.com. It can also be found on my website in the um, in the uh, information section, um, the highly, I highly recommend section under books. And the link there is, will take you right to Amazon where you can get it as well. I've read her book. I found it very, very insightful and interesting. And, and in many ways, um, you know, different perspectives to philosophies that I've had that, that certainly um, correspond and expand upon a lot of things that I have held to for a very long time. So welcome to the show, Ellen. Thank you, Barb. It's it's really a wonderful opportunity to talk with you and to be with you today. Well, it's always fun to, to share with, I, I've been in the field as long as you have, and it, it's always fun to, to get together with people that, that have gone, you know, a parallel path, but a little bit different. So philosophies um, aren't, aren't exactly the same, and yet the material is, and, and I just, I'm, 
I enjoyed your book thoroughly. I enjoyed your journey as well, as far as, you know, how you got to where you are. Um, you only started a lot earlier than I did. Um, but, but I think it's fascinating how your journey, um, of, of course, everyone's is unique, but yours is, I think, especially unique because right from the get-go, almost, you, you kind of knew that there was something different and a different direction that you had to follow. Yes, yes. Um, you know, I, I'm always so happy that I was raised by my father, who was a physicist. So I grew up in a scientifically oriented household, and that gave me a certain perspective of approaching life and my experiences in a very methodical way. I, I wasn't raised with an organized religion, and even as a very young child, I had clairvoyant experiences. I saw faces in the dark, and I had out-of-body experiences, but uh, there was really no one around me who could explain what was happening. So those experiences really caused me some anxiety and confusion, and at the same time, I had a mother with a severe case of MS, and so there was a lot of difficulty in my childhood as well. And I write in my book that the watershed event for me was when I was 19, and my mother came back and talked to me after she died. And this she was actually gave you such great advice, though. Yeah, she. Well, I always say my mother gave me birth and my mother gave me rebirth because after that communication, I had a new life. It was as if I started to see everything differently. But she, um, she, her basic message was, do not mourn for me. I chose what I endured to learn compassion for those who suffer she said, if you look deeply, you will see that there are always reasons and always justice, which yeah. is a profound message. And oh, then absolutely. after that, it was like a veil was lifted. And that's when I started to have direct connection with spirit in a way that I stopped being afraid. And, mm-hmm. um, and then these magnificent beings became my teachers well, in in a lot of ways, I I know it, it it was difficult, but in a lot of ways, you didn't have to deprogram yourself to program yourself in a different way. You basically were able to to embrace this material um, w- without conflict, and and that's an amazing thing because so many of us you know, did grow up with, with, you know, the Sunday school and stuff like that. And so there are barriers to a spiritual philosophy. And, and it does feel as though early on you were so, you, you, you were so in tune with the fact that spirits do come back so that, so that, you know, you weren't, you weren't afraid of it. And that, that's a magnificent thing. I, I know that, um, I do believe that it was through a, a trans a, a medium that you you were able to communicate with your mom. Yes, um, she was my brother's girlfriend at the time, and she wasn't a profession. She was a professional actress, actually, but she had a gift of mediumship, 
And the first time I met her, she simply put out her hand and said, hello, is there anyone who's dead who you'd like to speak to? (laughs) Which was pretty startling for a 19-year-old who was searching. But I opened myself to that opportunity. Yeah, so, you know, I feel... I do feel fortunate that, I mean, we're, I believe we're all time release capsules. And, you know, I, I worked with a man the other day in his 60s, and he's now having a spiritual awakening. You know, we have our own cosmic timing. And I do feel that I was fortunate that my, my opening happened at a young age. Well, yes, and in such a profound way, too. I mean, um I don't think there's a one of us whose mother has passed who wouldn't have liked to have gotten a message from them at some point in time. And, you know, and, and you had that, I mean, your mother's face was superimposed upon the medium's face too. So you really knew it was your mom. I knew it was my mother. I, I could see her, you know, I went into the experience as a skeptic and Mm -hmm. the experience was so vivid so dramatic that I had no doubt. And that really um, meant that I began to see that I was spirit temporarily on the earth and that everyone mm-hmm. was spirit temporarily on the earth. And as I said, after that, well, after that, I actually dropped out of college, which was the cardinal sin in my family because my father was a professor. Uh-huh. And then I, I became educated by beings of wisdom and light from the spiritual world who taught me intensely for 10 years. And they gave me a philosophy of life. They gave me tools of techniques. And they, they basically said, we're going to teach you how to be a sensitive in, in an insensitive world. <laughs> well, you know, it's, first of all, I truly believe that skeptics are the best converts. And because because when you convert a skeptic, you know, they don't come half they don't come halfway, they come all the way. And I I really feel that that in in some ways your sensitivities, you know, really helped along the way because I do re, I do recall from your book you said that you couldn't sleep that night and you took a book out of her bookshelf and it was on palmistry and the next thing you knew you were you were, I, I love the term scrying. You were scrying people's hands. And I like that term better than palmistry, to, to be honest with you, because scrying is so much more descriptive. I, I, I scry hands as well. And my mother asked me once, she said, are you doing palmistry? And I said, and I said no, I'm just getting messages from the hand. <laughs> exactly. So, and, and hand scrying really means reading the soul through the hand. And, you know, the way that we access spiritual knowledge is always through deep focus. So when you, when you scry the hand, you focus deeply, which is actually perceiving deeper than the physical or someone who, it doesn't matter, you know, what you're focused on. My guides always say, if you, if you focus deeply, you get beneath the surface and beneath the surface spirit always exists so it's just a way in that uh, has always worked for me well yet when you stop to think about it the hand has the pressure points for all aspects and could be a doorway in so you know it's 
it's an amazing gift that you have been able to develop into a deeper philosophy of life, which, which is, you know, I, I love the title of your book, um, a guidebook oh, for life on earth. It's, it's a, it's, it, it really grabs you and it, 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 it makes you wonder, well, what could possibly be the guidebook? I'm here. And so many people have said, you know, I came into this earth plane here, but there, there was no book of directions. There were no instructions on how to use whatever talents and gifts I have. And, and you give some profoundly insightful philosophies and techniques in order to tune yourself to that spirit that you carry within. Yes. Well, you know, the subtitle, A Guidebook for Life on Earth, really has two meanings to me. One is that my guides in the spiritual world, my teachers, have been the source of the knowledge. And so it's a guidebook for life on earth because the source of the knowledge hasn't come from the earth, but it's a spiritual perspective of how to live on the earth with the understanding that our incarnation here really is a school. Oh, yeah. But it's not a bad school. It's a good school. <laughs> Absolutely. It's a, well, what is a school? A school is a place to learn. A school is a place to develop and to grow and to actualize potential. And that's what the earth is. Yeah, and, and it to me it, it seems that now you have um you know, so many people um define the physicality in, in different ways, whether it's body, mind and spirit, whether it's um personality, soul, spirit, whether it's you know, there there are lots of different ways of um, explaining the different layers of consciousness that are available to us. And, and you have a very interesting way of defining it as well. Yes. So my distinctions are that everyone has a spirit, a soul, and a personality. The spirit is a spark of the God force that exists in everyone, and everyone's spirit's good. Our spirit is the only part of our nature that's constant. Everything else is evolving, but the spirit is who we are at the most essential level. And everyone's spirit has an individual emphasis. One spirit may emphasize creativity, another wisdom, another nurturing. So this is, this is our essence. And then the soul is the container of the spirit. The soul is what allows our spirit to have individuality and animation. When we die, both the spirit and the soul leave together because we maintain individuality after death. And the soul is very complicated where the spirit is simple. The soul contains all of our past life patterns and traumas and talents and fears that have accumulated through all of the many lives we've lived. And in the soul, there's the concept that I call first error or the original attitude that was not in harmony with our spiritual nature. I call it the beginning of the karmic snowball. And Mm -hmm. 
in Christianity, they call it original sin. But I've found that it's not the same for everyone. We don't have the same exact type of fears or confusions. And so I call it first error because we all started out with an enlightenment, which means originally we were able to actualize our spiritual nature with consistency, and then we lost it. We had fear or confusion or reaction. And when I trace people back to the beginning of that imbalance, it helps to understand, you know, what, what's the core issue that keeps repeating? What's the root lesson that needs to be resolved? And when we incarnate, we're guided towards families and circumstances that bring this up. We all get set up to grow whether we want to or not. And then over the soul is our personality, our persona in the world. And this, my guides say, is influenced by genetics and it's influenced by our environmental conditioning. That's where psychology stops. And then I add past life influences and influence from the spiritual essence. My guides say fulfillment is when we manifest our spiritual nature with consistency. When we feel it, express it, and manifest it, that's what happiness is. And it's so important because our culture has a definition of happiness as being getting what we want. And what that definition does is breed a very unhappy culture because Mm -hmm. no one gets everything they want. And so people end up being dissatisfied. But if we shift the definition to self-actualization, then what's most important is how are we responding to our circumstance, not what our circumstance is. Now, um, does every is first error a constant through every incarnation, or or does it change? It's a constant through every incarnation. So how how does one determine what it is? Well, in my book, I have a chapter on the relationship between fear and desire, mm-hmm. and this is a concept that helps people to get to the understanding of both their spiritual nature and their first error. So you can say that our deepest desire is linked to our spiritual nature because really our deepest desire is linked to manifesting our spirit. So one person's spirit may have an emphasis of love And so their deepest desire may be that they desire to be loved, where someone else may have the desire to be fully actualized in their creativity. Then their spiritual nature is about creativity. So on the flip side, when we look at the fear, I have people in my classes meditate on what is my deepest fear? I'll give an exa- I give the example of myself. My spiritual emphasis is wisdom. My deepest fear is really my fear of ignorance. Whether it's other people's ignorance or my own ignorance, it's the fear that ignorance will cause terrible ramifications and suffering. And yet my spirit's emphasis is wisdom. And the more wise I become, the less afraid of ignorance I am. 
because the more I understand that ignorance is an inevitable part of the learning and evolutionary process. Someone who has a spiritual nature of love and is afraid that they're not lovable or that they won't get the love they want, the more deeply they go into the, their nature as spirit, which is to love, the more they get in touch with the fact that as spirit, they are loved and they love and therefore they're always loved. And my guides say attitude precedes manifestation. So the more we get in touch with the spiritual principles and with our spiritual nature, the more we manifest that. If we're focused on our fears, we manifest that. Now, how does, how does one determine their, their spiritual nature then? Is this- well, this is where meditation is so key. I mean, I can do a session for someone and in the session, I trace back the past lives and I get to the core spiritual nature and I get to the first air through a session. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's one way. But there's also the way of going about it through meditation. And in a meditative state, asking and listening. Meditation to me isn't a relaxation exercise. It's the ability to hold the brain chatter still, listen deeply in an open, positive state. And then you can go into meditation and ask the question, what is my deepest desire? And listen, what is my deepest fear? And listen. And these questions lead people to understanding what their spiritual nature is and what this first error is. That's big stuff. I mean, it, it seems to me that that we are so guided almost intellectually, you know, from birth. So that so that getting into a listening or, or a hearing or a focusing is hard for a lot of people. Yes. You know, the analogy is like learning to read books. You know, when you're a kid and you're first learning to read, it it takes work and it takes time. And yet, once you learn to read, the whole world opens up. And the same is with meditation. It takes some time and some work. But once you learn to become a good meditator, the whole spiritual world can open up to you. Is there is there a recommended type of med- meditation? Or, or I, I have found that, you know, there are a lot of people that can't sit still and there are a lot of people that um that not only can sit still but they, they become immobile. Uh I'm I'm one of the restless people, so my forms of meditation have to have motion to them. Well, there are a number of factors, you know. I I also wrote a book called The Wisdom of the Chakras because I became very interested in understanding human behavior and everyone is so unique. Oh, yeah. And so I didn't read books on chakras. I just watched people's chakras for a couple of decades clairvoyantly. And I found that I could understand strengths and weaknesses through observing a person's chakras. So as far as meditation goes, 
the absolute key to being a good med- meditator is opening the crown chakra. When I see people meditating energetically and the crown chakra isn't opened, then they're not going to be good meditators. It, it's just not going to go well. And it might be a relaxation exercise, which is lovely, but not the depth and the spiritual experience that can come from meditating well. So the crown chakra, well, I I don't know if your listening audience knows chakras, but it it means wheel in Sanskrit. And there's seven fundamental centers or, or, or wheels. Um, of energy that go from the top of the head to the base of the spine. So the one on the top of the head is the bridge from the material to the spiritual dimension. And if the crown is closed, the door to spirit is closed. If the door is opened, then access becomes available. So what closes the crown is discouragement, worry, feeling self-reliant, over-analysis, and fear. We live in a culture of closed crown chakras. What opens the crown chakra is trust, devotion, inspiration, and spontaneity. So I tell people, before you meditate, you must open the crown. And the easiest way for the largest number of people is through inspiration. So focus on something that inspires you. It can be a memory, a person, a concept. My favorite quote I I quote in my book, The Infinite View, is by Emily Dickinson. She and I grew up in the town where she lived, so I, I grew up with her poetry. She said she knew a poem by two things. One, when she felt chills all over her body and couldn't get warm sitting next to a fire. And two, when she felt the top of her head come off. (laughs) And I loved that. I said, wow, she could feel what an open crown chakra felt like. That if if what was written was inspiring, the top of her head would come off. And that's that's great feeling of an open crown chakra. So before you meditate, you want to feel that the top of your head has come off. And, (laughs) and, you know, the thing, the thing, the thing about inspiration is what inspires you doesn't necessarily inspire me. It's different for each of us. So we each need to know what works for us. What moves us? What inspires us? What makes us feel glad to be alive? You know, depression, my guides define as a closed crown chakra. It's quite literal that when the aura depresses, we feel disconnected. We feel dullness in living. When the crown is opened, you have expansion. Expansion gives you the feeling of connection and a feeling of joy. So it's a very important thing to understand. And, you know, it's one of the reasons little children can be so much fun is they tend to have open crown chakras. They have spontaneity and they trust sometimes to the degree where it's a problem. (laughs) Um, My next, 
my next my next book I'm writing about under my approach to the chakra system and applying it to education and children and parenting because it's it's really a, a fabulous checklist. But so the way I teach meditation is like an X. The bottom part is everyday thought. The point in the center is stillness. The upper part is revelation. It's getting answers to your questions. It's connection with spirit. It's feeling the principles that hold life together. And so the first step is inspiration to open the crown. Affirmation is the second step. It's a positive affirmative statement. So essentially, I have people practice saying one thought before they go into no thoughts. And the thought I tell people to start with is, I am spirit, I am infinite spirit. I am spirit, I am infinite spirit. To remember who we are and to create a positive force. And then after you've said that for a while, pause. It's kind of like a rocking. I am spirit, infinite spirit. I am spirit, infinite spirit. Pause. Hold your mind still. Then go back to the affirmation. And gradually elongate the pauses using the affirmation as you need it and when you don't let it go. And over time, you can elongate the pauses. I always tell my classes that my absolute best skill is I know how not to think. <laughs> that, that does get in the way a lot. <laughs> it does. And it's no one's fault. We've all been through years and years and years of school that say, don't waste your time staring out the window. Don't waste your time not thinking. <laughs> yeah, but it's I, not I taught thinking. Uh, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, ta- I, I taught uh, special education for 25 years, and I found those kids inspirational because they were not restricted by as much as as everybody else is. They had a freedom about them that was almost blissful. And and yes. they could be ta- they could be taken into. Um, I, I remember once I we were talking about. Me- I, I mentioned meditation, and they said, "What is that?" And so I turned the lights off, and I I showed them, and they were so responsive to drifting, floating, to listening that that it was it was amazing. And I kept thinking, you know, I do a meditation group once a week for seventeen years. If I could get those people to this stage, I would feel I had really succeeded. Um, they were amazing. I just, I totally well, I loved think you, them. I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is the reason more people don't have more direct spiritual experiences is there's been an overemphasis on the development of the intellect. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I mean, I come from an academic background. My father was a professor. My son is a professor. I love intelligence and the developing of the intellect. But only if you can turn it off when you don't need it. Yeah. I I, I work with a small group of people now. And 
a couple of them, I, I keep saying to them, you're thinking, you're not listening, you're analyzing, you know, take what comes inspirational to you and don't analyze it. Let it out of your mouth. Don't think about it. And um, when they can turn their brain off and just allow, uh, magic happens. Yes. You know, I one of my favorite stories in my book is the story about my father. You know, he was a theoretical physicist. And I remember when I was young, he told me that one of the things he'd do before he'd start a research project would be lie in bed, listen to classical music, and wait. Uh-huh. And after a while, ideas were given to him. And he said he knew they weren't his. And then he'd go to the library and research them. And my explanation is that the music inspired him, which uh-huh. opened his crown. And then his guides got through to him, gave him information, and then he used his intellect to research it. Oh, yeah. Einstein used to take short naps and got inspiration that way. Um, I mean, it's, it's amazing. I mean, when you, when you think about um, who was it, the, the song Imagine for the Beatles, that came through a meditation or it came automatically. I, I think that so many people get inspiration in their day-to-day life and they don't realize that that's what it is. And they, yes, they, don't, exactly. they don't hold on to it because once you are in that zone, um, you know, it, it, things aren't work anymore. I, I do a lot of writing and most of it is inspirational. And, and I wait until I feel that flow and then I step back and just let it happen. Yes. And everyone's capable of it. It's not, it's not a special gift to, to just certain individuals. It's, it's, it's a, it's a part of evolving. And, and once you hit it and once you feel that flow, you, you, know, you just, you, you don't go back. You know, it, yes. it's, and it's, the key is opening the crown chakra. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like, you know, if, if there's a lid on a glass, you can't pour water into it. Exactly. So, exactly. so that, you know, you, you take the lid off and you allow, you know, the universe to, to flow through you and, and it does. And it's just, it's, it's like magic. It really is. I, I know of no other way of, of describing it. Um, you are a vessel and things come through you and you share them with other people. And it's, it's, it's an exciting thing, but for those who, who are still trapped in the intellect, um, in developing the skills of, of deep focus and deep listening are really important. Um, you know, do you have suggestions for, for those who, you know, are, are looking and seeking and, and they don't know how to start? Well, the meditation technique that I described is, is uh-huh. in my book and I would say practice. Then you mentioned deep focus. So, you know, my guides talk about attunement to one's own spirit and that the two fundamental skills to develop are deep listening and deep focus. Focus is linked to the third eye chakra in the middle of the forehead. 
it's activated only by focus and concentration. In sports, they call it the zone. And Mm -hmm. I've talked to professional athletes who have told me that when they're in the zone, they're not attached to winning. They feel a connection with everything and everyone. Things slow down and they perform their best. And that comes from deep focus and concentration. Now, we have a culture where many are diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. Well, Mm -hmm. this is a focus problem. And it can be changed when people practice focus and concentration and build that muscle. One of the things that can make it hard for people to focus has to do also with a poor diet or food allergies. You know, if I don't eat a strict diet, it's much harder for me to focus. It's much easier for me to be caught in brain fog. So there are a variety of factors. But um, focus and concentration is something that really can be developed. You know, my daughter was diagnosed with attention deficit disorder at Mass General Hospital at age 10. And I said, no, thank you. No medication for her. And with focus and practice, you know, I took her back and she didn't have it anymore. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, it's diagnosed as a lifelong affliction, but it really doesn't need to be. No, so, and, but but doesn't it go ahead. too? Doesn't it too also help you if you know what your spiritual nature is and 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 are able to find elements within your personal nature that will draw your attention and hold your attention. I mean, um, for instance, if someone's personal nature has to do with creativity, then focus can be on a creative project of some sort, as opposed to giving them something more intellectual and having them focus on that. Well, absolutely. But I'm talking about focus in a different way. I'm talking about focus. My guides have a phrase. They say, when you open two eyes, open three. So I'm talking about focus more as a posture that imagine you're slouching and then you want to have good posture. You have to pay attention and, you know, keep your shoulders back. Well, focus can be a posture. You know, if you focus out of the third eye, the middle of your forehead, as you move through daily life, that is a way of being. So it's not so much focus on your interests. It's focus as a state of being. So it's, it's uh, really um, quite remarkable. What I, you know, what I, I have a whole chapter in my book about this and how I learned about it. But what I found was that we are what I call a solar plexus dominant culture. The solar plexus chakra is the gut. So not only are we favoring the intellect in schools, but most people are actually focused on the gut. And I always laugh that one of my closest friends in high school wrote a a book called Follow Your Gut. And I'm trying to spend my life dispelling that notion because – 
as I've watched people clairvoyantly, I see that people who are focused in the gut as they make decisions and move through their life have a diminished aura. People who live life looking through their forehead have a brighter, bigger, more positive aura. So I started working very many years ago with my clients and having them compare perception while focused in the gut and then perception while they focused out of their forehead. And the difference was startling. People who were angry in the solar plexus were compassionate from the third eye. People who were confused in the solar plexus were clear and wise from the third eye. Over and over again, the third eye view helped people to perceive and to um, have a clarity that really was to their benefit. So it's a, it's a posture. And it's really, um, you know, I mean, I tell people if you're, you're going to make a decision, stare at a point. When I wake up in the morning, I focus on the corner of my window and I say, what are my priorities today? Because when I look out of my third eye, activated through focus and concentration, my wisest self comes to the foreground. Hmm. I, I've also found that, that each of the chakras has a vocabulary attached to it. And you can almost tell where someone is coming from, from the vocabulary they use, because, you know, those who come from the, for instance, the root chakra are very self-oriented and those, and the third eye certainly is, is more intuition and, and um, spiritually oriented and the throat chakra is more of a creative nature and the solar plexus is birthing. It's, it's, there's wisdom there, but it's, it's, limited so that so that it's it's also vocabulary on top of perception well what i found is that every chakra has its appropriate function it's very much like um our organs you know um the lungs have their function and the kidneys have their function and each chakra has its appropriate function and when they get misused then things start to uh, go wrong. And so to me, the third eye is the center of wisdom. The crown is the bridge to the spiritual world. The throat is Mm -hmm. the center of self-esteem. And it's the center of expression. And the heart is the center of love. My guides always say, don't make your decisions from your heart because they say the heart is a radiator, not a discriminator. (laughs) It, it, It is the center that should radiate love, but it's not the center of decision making. The third eye or wisdom is the center of decision making. And the solar plexus is the center of emotion. It's the center of feeling. And so they say perception informs feeling or perception should inform feeling rather than feeling should inform perception. So, you know, it's, I must say, I mean, where, where do we get our conclusions, you know, and, uh, and I never tell people to believe me, but this 
has come from my, you know, many years of clairvoyant observation. And when I teach, I always tell people, okay, this is how I see it. Now go apply it in your own life and see if it's applicable for you. Oh, yeah. No, I think that, that your method is amazing. And, and I think that uh, anybody who, who, you know, chooses to just experiment a little with it will, will find a vast difference between coming from the solar plexus and coming from the third eye. Absolutely. Um, yes, people do. There is, people really oh, do. My gosh, I mean, the, the amount of discernment that comes from a spiritual side is so different from what comes from, you know, a gut, a gut place. Um, yes. It, it's, it, and, and yet, you know, we have been basically trained to trust the gut. And uh, I know the gut doesn't always know what's best for you. <laughs> no, it keeps us caught in negative habits. I love to quote my son when he was in high school and I taught him this technique. He said, oh, when I when I'm in the solar plexus, I experience the human condition from the human perspective. And it's a tragedy. Yes. And then he said, from the third eye. I experienced the human condition from the spiritual perspective, and it's really interesting. (laughs) He didn't say it was easy. He just said it was interesting. Well, I I think that, uh, you know, personally, the the discernment that comes from a more spiritual look at something is is so much better than a gut reaction, knee-jerk, that is going to be more... Um, it, it's action without thought. Yeah. So, so it's it, it makes it makes a great deal of sense. I, I I always tell people, you know, if if you if you have the inclination to say or do something, you know, if your gut is telling you, I the the best thing to do is to take three deep breaths and reconsider, because chances are your your reaction is not appropriate for what's happening. I love the word reconsider. I think that's such a great word. Oh, my gosh, um, yeah. Yeah, to consider again. Yeah, and it, it's, it's really, um, we are in school here, and, and almost everything that happens to us has some relevance to the journey that we're on. And, and I love the fact that you talk about um, you're a spirit on a human journey because it it does it does kind of shift and change the whole approach to the lifetime. You know, I'm here to learn, I'm here to grow, I'm here to experience and and, and to gather knowledge and wisdom as I go. Um but but you know, so many people I hear so many people saying, well, I'm journey. And it's like, well, have a good trip. Uh, but you know, your perception is going to limit you to, to what you can actually gather. Um, if, if you were a spirit on a human journey, the perspective would be far greater. And, uh, sometimes I get a look of, are you crazy? And others it's a, Whoa, I never thought of it that way. So it, it, it and it's fifty fifty. Um, I, I you you did there. There's a part in your book that you you 
you talk about being in in um, in search of perfection or in sort in in search of being perfect or imperfection and the difference between the two and I thought that was wonderful. Thank you. Um, you know, much of this book comes from material that um, that was developed in a cla- for a class series, and mm-hmm. my guides really helped me to orchestrate the class. And the last class in that series is on the relationship between perfect and perfection. And so in the class, we start by meditating on the affirmation, I am perfect. And when we do that, people feel really uncomfortable, feel like they can't breathe, and feel like it's simply not true. And then I have people meditate on the affirmation, I am filled with perfection. And they feel fluid and expansive and a sense of interconnection. And so what gets discovered in that process is that perfect is an arrival and process. I mean, and and perfection is a process. Mm -hmm. And so people sometimes strive to be perfect, but they can never ever get there because we're in a process that's long and evolving. So that's one aspect of perfection. And the other aspect is the difference between lessons learned and the process of perfection. So if something happens in our lives, there is most likely a lesson for us in the circumstance that has transpired. But the perfection of what's transpired is not only our lesson, It's the interconnected learning process. So perfection is this big concept of interconnection, interconnected learning, how my learning affects the learning of my family, which affects others and affects the universe. It's it's really this vast concept that I must say I have trouble grasping intellectually I only get it in deep meditation which is really the orchestration of our spiritual evolutionary process it's really profound so when I have a difficult experience I will ask myself in meditation what's the perfection of this (laughs) it's really (laughs) it's really what's the spiritually interconnected evolution, evolutionary meaning of this. And it really shows that we are interconnected, that nothing happens in isolation, that how we move through our life is like a pebble in the pond that ripples in many, many directions. Absolutely. And, you know, when, when I was reading it, I, I, kept, I kept hearing over and over, you know, the process of evolution, transformation, and all of that is a marathon, not a sprint. Yes, and, absolutely. And, you know, a sprint would be this lifetime, and it's a marathon. It's, it's, it's something that is constantly being built upon, and 
I mean, if I, I, somebody, somebody had, you know, happily they had a smile on their face when they said, I'm perfect. I'm done. I don't have to come back again. And it's like, if you were done, you would not be here. You know, if you were perfect, (laughs) there would be no point to this lifetime. You know, you can't just come down here on vacation. If you're here, you're here for a reason and you're growing. And, and it's sort of like, I wouldn't want to be perfect. That would mean I was, I would be done. And I'm, I'm enjoying this journey much too much to want to stop it. So, um, you know, I, I think yeah. people, people, people tend to think that, you know, it's a one shot and out. And I mean, maybe in some cases it is, but, but in general, this is, this is a, a very long journey. And this lifetime yeah. is only a short part of it. So, so to be hard on yourself because you aren't perfect yet, um, kind of, you know, is is being overly hard. I think because, you know, if if we didn't make mistakes, we wouldn't learn. Mistakes are good. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Absolutely. And and it and, does. You know, it it does bring to question, you know, why people get so hard on themselves when they do make an error or make a mistake or, you know, often when, when I screw up, it's like, well, that was really interesting. I wonder what the lesson is here. And, and often it's, you know, go to bed, you need more sleep. So, <laughs> well, you know, it has to do with people's fears or our own for one person the mistake makes them feel that they're not going to be lovable for another person. The mistake makes them feel that they're overly responsible for another person. The mistake makes them feel that they're inadequate. So it depends on what the soul fear is. You see? Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I know that um, I, I served in, in the pulpit for five years and the very first time I, I, I had to give a sermon um, I, I did so good. I put everyone to sleep. I even think <laughs> I took a short nap. And the next time I got called back and I was surprised when I was, I said to everybody, look, I, I really don't want to give you a sermon, but I will share with you some of my lessons and how I have screwed up and the universal law that was brought to mind and how I grew from it. And, you know, I knew that the, if I could get the congregation laughing, they would remember the universal law and they would apply it at some point in time in their life. And, you know, somebody said to me, aren't you, aren't you going to run out of sermons or, or sharing? And I said, no, I have 74 years going for me. I, I can probably go for a very long time before I run out of ways I've screwed up and what I saw from it. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> It, it's, it's, you know, those, those, when we mess up, when we, when we catch ourselves and we realize, uh oh, maybe this wasn't the wisest thing going. And, you know, and, and instead of beating ourselves up, take a look at what, what am I being taught here? Because I don't want to do this again. So what is my lesson? And, and lessons are always, I believe, deeper than we perceive and, and will evolve over time once we give them credit for being a lesson. But um, it's, it's important. Um, and I think someplace in your book, and I can't remember exactly where, but you said positivity was our greatest uh, protection. And yes, my, 
my you goodness. Have, you have a good memory. <laughs> um, yeah, so my guides define positivity as attitudes based in spiritual principles, mm-hmm. like love or compassion or balance or creativity. And negativity are attitudes not based in spiritual principles. And when we are in positive attitudes, and I define attitudes as a combination of thoughts and feelings, we generate more light because every thought we think, every word we speak has an energy to it, which clairvoyantly can be seen in color. Mm -hmm. Negative attitudes, you know, like the attitude of anxiety is often a, a greenish brown. The, the colors of negativity are dark, are dull. And what I find is that when we cultivate positive attitudes and we emanate more light, then we don't absorb our environment. We don't become psychic sponges. Yeah. When our auras are not light and bright and big, then if you're standing in the grocery store next to someone who's angry or depressed, you're going to absorb their attitudes because we are not separate. We are energetic beings. We even know this from biology. Our arms are in motion. They're not solid. And so when we're not in positivity, we will absorb the people we spend time, we will absorb their emotional state. And then people's negative emotions ricochet off each other. And people often feel upset and angry at others because, well, if you weren't so negative, I'd be having a better time. Well, the (laughs) fact is that if people can cultivate positivity, then there's enough protection and a lack of overabsorbing that then when you're around someone who's negative, you're not going to be negatively affected. And in fact, you then can become a positive influence. Mm-hmm. I, I often, I have people calling me frequently, you know, when they're going through an anxiety attack or something. And, and, you know, when somebody rants and raves a little bit, it's, it's sort of once they start talking, it's, I, I often will say, you know, this is such wasted effort. You're worried about something that hasn't happened. Save it, you know, so that when it happens, you've got a good supply of, of anxiety here because you're wasting it now. It's just, it's just flowing out of you and you're losing energy and nothing has happened. I, I, I have a friend whose son had frequent meltdowns and she called me and she said, I know he's going to have a meltdown. I just know he's going to have a meltdown. And I said, no, the only person melting down here is you. Cause he hasn't yeah. gone off yet. And, and, and so it's, it's paying attention to where your energy is. And, and, you know, is this, you know, every now and then somebody needs to blow, I guess it just, you know, um, I haven't blown up in a long time, but, but I must have a long fuse, but, but, you know, it's, it's kind of like save it for when you need it because there's no point in, in spewing stuff all over the place. If nothing has happened, you know, somebody has their house on the market, they worry about 
you know, what if it doesn't sell? Well, when it doesn't sell, that's when you start worrying, not, not, you know, the first day it's on the market. Well, even worrying if it doesn't sell doesn't do anything for you. (laughs) No, not a thing. Not a thing. But, you you know, positivity is really important. I I totally agree with you. I think laughter as well. Because, you know, if you can incorporate laughter in your life, real laughter, not fake laughter, but, but genuine laughter, it helps to lighten the mood and bring a more positive air into everything. Well, what I see with laughter is it releases emotional blockages in the solar plexus. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it, to me, it's, it's important. If you, if, if you can find laughter, there's hope because laughter is light. It lightens everything. But that doesn't mean you tease or make fun of. It means that there's genuine laughter there. You have to be careful because, you know, I, I don't want anybody to to use the wrong kind of laughter. <laughs> yeah, but, not a cynical laughter, but a no. fun, a, a goofy, fun laughter. Yeah, I, I you know, you, you talked about um, also, I want to get back to the focus part. Um, your brother had 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 difficulty as well i believe um and and he went into running as his focus yes i how um how unfortunate it is that so many children are put on medication for hyperactivity mm-hmm. and um and when you understand who a child is in their spirit and how best to help them, then there isn't a repression process. There isn't a repressing of their nature just to get them to behave, but rather helping to cultivate the actualization of who they are. And my brother had this tremendous vitality. You know, he couldn't sit still one friend, family friend, called him uh, rumpus because he he just, you know, was so active. And, you know, he channeled it into becoming a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. And I just mentioned in my book how if he had been a young child today who who wasn't, you know, sitting still because he had so much energy, then he may it may have been suggested that he be medicated. And so I'm really not a proponent of medicating children and it's, um, you know, for, for focus reasons or, um, hyperactivity or attention deficit disorder. I think it's, it's a, it's a misguided approach. Absolutely. Um, I've often said to people that, you know, we create a reality by our perception of it and you, 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 one of the things that, that I I think I read was that how we focus informs our perception, which informs how we feel. And I think they say the same thing, that, that, that how we perceive something directly correlates to how we feel. And it but should I, be that way, not, not how we feel, cre- you know, changes our perception. It should be how we perceive creates the emotion. Yes. So the third eye should inform the solar plexus perception, 
But, you know, there is a popular concept at which we create our own reality, and my guides disagree with that. And okay. the reason the reason is because um, that concept gets people to think that if they use their will to manifest something, they can. But it's much more complicated than that because there's karma, there's destiny, there's choice. And so sometimes, you know, like, for example, my mother's destiny was to go through a disease. Uh That the process of what we can influence and can't influence varies. And this is where I have a chapter on the relationship between destiny and choice which is some people have a lot of choice and a lot of ability to influence the way their life unfolds. Other people have very little choice. I don't have a lot of choice. And oh, that's your so short leash, the, long leash. Exactly. So I have okay. a short leash life. And so what happens is I think some people who feel that they can create their own reality, they, they either – they have influenced the situation when it was really destiny anyway, or that their thoughts had a big impact, but they happen to have choice. And in that case, they do have a lot of impact. So I think it gets very confusing, the concept you create your own reality, because like in my mother's case, someone would say, well, you created that disease. Well, her spirit did, but her conscious Mm -hmm. mind did not. Well, yeah, nobody would would voluntarily choose something like that. But that's but that's 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 consciousness on a very human level. If you look at it from a spirit consciousness, it, it's simply I, I I'm put in this situation to learn something from it, and and I'll learn something and move on. And again, that another that other thing of that this is a marathon, and and yeah. so. But, but you know, don't you, I, I mean, personally, if I break my leg, I'm going to, I'm going to say, this is a good thing because now I can read a lot of the books that I haven't gotten to, as opposed to, oh, damn, I'm not going to be able to do the things that I would, you know, I, I'm going to find a positive way to look at it so that in, in, in many ways, things that many people would call um, a disadvantage, I I perceive as an advantage. Um, I had a car accident a long, long time ago and it gave me vertigo and I spent a lot of time on the floor. And I said to my mother once, as I was picking myself up, I am going to call rug companies first thing in the morning. And she said, why? And I said, I'm going to see if they need pile investigators. I'm down there. Anyhow, I might as well get paid for it. (laughs) And (laughs) <laughs> she, That's great. She, she said, I think you're a little nuts. And I said, well, you know, if you're going to be on the ground, find a way to make a profit. So, you know, it's, it's, it's how you perceive a situation that, that in, in many ways does determine your frame of, your frame of mind. And yes, and- it, yes. So, you know, my guide say it this way, we have complete control over our attitudes Yep, we have we have influence over our environment and our circumstance, but not control. And uh-huh. our karmic past is fixed. 
Yeah, I believe that. Um, and it's just that, you know, so many people feel so helpless and they're not helpless. I mean, they do have control over, you know, to a degree over their perception of what is going on. They may not be, you know, let's face it, nobody's going to choose to be wheelchair bound or or quadriplegic or, I mean, you know, you just don't in human form choose things like that. But if that is their, 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 if that's what is meant to be, then, um, then find a way to, to benefit from it instead of using it as, as a burden. Um, yeah. I mean, if you want to use it as a burden, go ahead. If you're happy doing it as a burden, fine. But, but I, I know a lot of people there, there, there are people who are double amputees that, that are now running races. They just would not accept the, you know, they, they accept the fact that their legs got cut off, but, but, they choose to still be to, to become mobile so that, so that there is, you know, it's part of the lesson, I guess. And, and no matter how difficult the lesson is, your perception of it makes it hard or easy depending on, on what your choices are. I agree. I agree. There are, there are a lot of people that, you know, really enjoy being miserable. Um, I don't choose to be around them, but (laughs) But if they're happy, that's what counts. <laughs> well, I I think that yeah, everyone has a story and and a timing, and it's it's complex. You know, my guides say we have two fundamental challenges that make it hard to actualize our spiritual nature. One uh-huh. is our past life patterns and circumstances. Uh, that are not resolved, that contain trauma and fear. And the other is the cultural conditioning and environment that doesn't support our spiritual nature. And they actually say that our cultural environment is our biggest hurdle. That if we lived in a society that was actualizing spiritual principles, that was wise and loving and... um, and focused on these positive concepts, it would be much easier for everyone to do it as well. Because the, the, the process of moving into this positive sphere and actualizing our spiritual nature sometimes is like swimming up against the current of consciousness. So it takes effort. Where if you're, you know, I write in my book this imaginary story. Imagine you walk into a room of loving, uh, enlightened, wise people, and you just get swept up with the positivity. And then you walk into a room full of people who are competitive and angry and um, critical. And the process of staying positive is much more work. Oh, geez, yeah. And, and yet, there are people that are plunked down in in those kind of situations. And, and um, I, I often tell them that, that, you know, there has to be a light in the darkness so people can recognize what light is. And, and you know, you, you, it, it isn't necessarily that you're meant to change them, but at least give them another philosophy to look at. 
Absolutely. Um, I'm just stating why it's hard for many people. Oh, yeah. No, it it, it is. I mean, we were the, the more spiritual I think you are, the more difficult sometimes the challenges that you have the, that you are faced with, because there is a, a a greater intensity and a greater need to stretch your consciousness to another level of understanding, and um, it's so exciting though I don't I don't understand why people I mean this this is such an exciting place to be. There is constantly <laughs> something new to learn. I mean, it's so cool. Yeah, I, I don't ever want to graduate. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I want to see the brochure for what comes next if you graduate from the Earth plane and, and this level of consciousness because I'm not so sure I want to go. Um, but but you, you, one of the things you have here, which, which I thought was so cool, um, was a statement you know, everyone should ask themselves, given what is, what am I to do? Yes. That's a good question. It's, I find it um, a guiding question. When I'm in a circumstance that's complicated or mm-hmm. whatever it happens to be, what I've been trained to do is focus. And from that state of focus, ask the question, Given what is, what am I to do? But always from focus, always from a third eye view. And what that question does is it prevents you from reacting. It's a pause. It's a reflection, an asking, and then a response. And it creates an object of clarity. Yeah, and you know, I think again the element of listening is so important. Um, sometimes people are listening for, like, like you know, a thunderous voice, like my my the guy that that does my intro, to come booming out of the clouds. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I love his voice, <laughs> um, but but answers don't always come that way I you know there's not always a burning bush there's not always a clap of thunder there's not always lightning and stuff like that sometimes the answers are very subtle and and you have to really listen and be open to an answer not when you want to hear but when you need to hear yes I agree completely I mean Lots of times I'll write the answer for something, but, you know, it, it's not exactly what I really need to experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes when it's like I've seen this, I've seen this, this, this lesson over and over again, I think I'm done. And then often I just hear laughter. Um, so clearly I'm not quite finished, but it's, it's important for people to, um, I think you say someplace to everyone should ask, who am I and why am I on the earth? Yes. That's a really good question. Yes, they're guiding. They're fundamental questions that everyone needs to ask. Well, you know, a lot of people ask it, but then they don't wait for the answer. And, you know, it's, it doesn't come, you know, and, you know, it, it, 
it often is not given you immediately. And, and lots of times um, I have found the universe uses symbology rather than, you know, someone sitting down on the other end of the phone. Well, it's just hard to generalize because yeah. everyone's story is different. Everyone's, um, you know, as I said, people are time release capsules. Mm-hmm. But when you ask the fundamental questions, you do begin the process, whatever that process happens to be for you. But the development of deep listening and deep focus is universal in that it serves everyone. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, not only, I mean, once you have actually developed the this ability to, to really listen and focus and, and to come from your third eye as opposed to your solar plexus, then tuning into other people becomes a really handy tool. It I mean, certainly that, does. <laughs> you know, not necessarily, you know, to do readings because, you know, that's, it, it's really funny. I'm now at a place where I'd rather use whatever gifts and talents I have what, 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 to go through whatever doors they'll open to me. And, and, and being able to focus on other people and, and to sort of determine where they are and what's going on and, 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 you know, what's the best way to approach them. It's a wonderful tool just, just for that alone, not, not to read yes. them. You know, I, readings to me don't make any sense. Which, which is ridiculous because I've done thousands of them. But to me, it's, it's understanding the person and what can I give them that, that might help them to open their doors because it's not for well, me Well, what do. you're talking about is using the skill of deep focus and deep listening in an, in an integrated way in daily, in daily living. Yes, so, so once, once we get people to open their third eyes, how, how does that benefit them in their everyday life? Well, sometimes I like to think of the third eye as the miner's light. It illuminates your path. It's the center of good decision-making, first and foremost. So because it's the center of wisdom, and how many decisions do we make in a day? We make little decisions and big decisions and using focus to help that process. So that's fundamental. The other is that from the third eye, there's a feeling of the glass is half full instead of the glass is half empty. So it helps people to cultivate positivity without a big effort. It's really, my guides say it's a pivot away. So that is another part. It's the center of clarity for prioritizing. We have a limited amount of time in the day, a limited amount of money, a limited amount of energy. How do we use these resources wisely and appropriately? The third eye helps make those types of practical decisions as well. And it also helps in relationships. You know, people often struggle in relationships because they're, reactionary or they're um, 
absorbing too much of what the other person is going through. The third eye brings about greater objectivity, which allows you to feel your own wholeness and not be caught in neediness. It's, mm-hmm. it's a tremendous difference. Oh, yeah. And I think one, one of the things that, that you brought up in your book and so many people, when, when they become involved with spirituality and, and understanding their chakras and, and understanding solar plexus and third eye and understanding opening the third eye, this is, this is something that is not intended, I don't believe, to be done you know, between nine and 10 o'clock at night, that's when I meditate. That's when I open my third eye. That's when I open my crown chakra. The, the point to all of this is that you live it. You don't just practice it at a certain time. You live it. You incorporate it into your everyday life so that it enhances every aspect of your everyday life, not just something you turn on and off when you have nothing else to do. Absolutely. The time, the reason it's good to have times to practice is so that the skills will be strong as you move mm-hmm. through your everyday life. Well, coming from, from the third eye and not the solar plexus is key issue here. It, it, it's key talent, key gift, key everything. But but it has to be, it, it's like you mentioned before, it's like a muscle. The more you use it, the better you get with it. And, yeah. and it's, it's, it's something that, you know, you can, you can use in the car when you're driving. You can practice focusing. You can practice listening. You can, I mean, there's, there's so much to it. The spiritual gifts are something that are inherently in all of us. And there is a bridge excuse me, a bridge to get to them. And once you know where that bridge is and know how to cross it, the more you cross it, the better you get. Yeah, as you're talking, it makes me think about my definition of spirituality, which is simply that we are human, but life also is more than just the material world. There's a spiritual realm there's a spiritual existence. And so when we start to perceive that life is both life in the material world and outside of the material world, then that's a spiritual view. And just as there's physics and there's the nature of physical reality, there's metaphysics, which is the nature of spiritual reality. And they are a continuum of what is true. Oh yeah, and I, I, per, I personally feel that that when you get to the point that that you are able to incorporate this into your everyday life, your everyday life takes on a vibrancy that that it, it's almost like going from black and white to going to technicolor, because it enhances your perception. And your ability to perceive the spirit within everyone and everything, as opposed to being selective in an intellectual way. Yes. And yet, you know, I went through a period where I had Lyme disease. It was the most difficult thing I've ever been through. 
And so what um, my spiritual perspective did for me when I was in terrible pain was it helped me to feel that, first of all, attunement, that I would get through it, and that when Uh I got through it, I would understand it. But in the middle of it, there was too much pain to understand it. So process of what I call attunement is saying, okay, given what is, what am I to do? And mm-hmm. and the real the real challenge I think is to not make generalizations that in one situation a spiritual perspective will not give you much information at all. It'll just help you to um keep going. In another yeah. situation a spiritual perspective will give you a lot of information. So it's really a sense of perspective and then the context in which you find yourself means that what that perspective gives you will just simply be appropriate for that moment. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that um, recognizing, I I, I think most importantly is, and, and you've said it a number of times and I'll reiterate it, we are spirits on a human journey. And mm-hmm. understanding that um, does put things in a different perspective. You know, it, it's, I am, you know, I am in part, part of that infinite wisdom that created everything so that I have access to that cosmic understanding and that cosmic wisdom. And will it solve, will it balance my checkbook? No. Nothing will ever balance my checkbook, but, <laughs> but 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 will it give me gifts and talents and skills to to navigate this reality? And 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 that's absolutely it will. They they won't always be what I expect, but but they'll be there for me. And and I think that it's so important that that people get that 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 realization that they are a spirit on a human journey, that their spirit has been through countless other journeys um, in this, in the human realm. And, and that, you know, that in past lives we've gathered wisdom and philosophies and all sorts of wonderful stuff that can be applied to the situations that we're going through. Past lives are not just, random hopscotches through time. They, they all string together to have validity to the lifetime we're in now. Absolutely. So, so how do people tap into those past lives? Well, I, um, you remember when we first started talking, I talked about the relationship between the spirit, the soul and the personality. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I teach classes, I teach people how to access past life memory. There's a variety of ways to do it. Um, it always helps to be a good meditator because then you get yourself out of the way. So if so, I always tell people, if you want to have past life memories, first become a good meditator. Okay. Then if you're a good meditator, Uh, Past life regression, anyone who does past life regression can be very effective way to remember past lives. But 
I found, because I've regressed a lot of people, that if you're not a good meditator, then you can go into imagination and not be accurate. So that's one thing. The other is the process of staring. What activates clairvoyance is staring. When you stare, the physical starts to blur and the energetic comes into focus. And, you know, little children have amazing capacity to stare for long periods of time. And they're often having clairvoyant experiences. And as we get older, we're either told not to stare or our eyes start to water and staring (laughs) becomes less common. But just as hand scrying is my form of staring into the soul, staring activates clairvoyance. So when I teach my class on reincarnation, I pair people up and I have them stare at each other and to try not to blink. And in the process of staring at one another, they start to see face changes. And the key is you stare and you meditate. So you don't think and you stare and you start to see face changes. And I talk about it as finding the gear. It's like when you're perceiving someone, you can perceive what they're wearing, what color their hair is. If you perceive deeper, you can perceive their emotional state. If you perceive deeper, you can perceive the health of their organs. If you perceive deeper, you can perceive the soul and the past life memories. So I teach people about perception and about being able to direct our perception to varying levels and varying degrees. There's a phrase I like and that I use in my book, which is what you focus on is what you see. And Uh if you're in a room, if you're in a room and you focus on something that happens to be blue, the blue things come to the foreground and everything else goes to the background. I particularly learned this when I was designing a house and I had to figure out how wide should the chimney be or what should the window placement be. And when I was making those decisions and I would drive by houses, I only saw chimneys or I only saw windows because that's what I was focused on. So when we're children, we're taught how to focus. And this is why prejudice can be trained when children are young because they're taught how to focus. So what I try to do in my classes is to teach people to focus in new ways. And what happens is they start to have experiences. They start to see face changes. They start to have past life memories by focusing in this deeper way once they know how to meditate. And I call it finding the past life gear. And once you find the gear, then it becomes easier and easier to access that place for yourself or for others. Cool. Very cool. I, I've, I've experimented from time to time with, with masking, staring into the mirror. And yes, exactly. Letting the blur your happen. Your face can change. Yes. It does. So you it can does. Do it with your, it does. You can do it with yourself in the mirror or you can do it with a partner. 
and watch their face change. And, and the other important point is there's inner vision and outer vision. So when you see your face change, that's outer vision. You're actually seeing it externally. Uh-huh. Inner vision is the vision you see in your mind's eye. So yeah, often very what happens to people is when they're starting to stare, let's say they're staring at someone and that person changes into a Native American, then often simultaneously there will be a series of images in the mind's eye that elaborate on the meaning and the details of that particular past life. So it starts integrating both this inner and outer visionary ability. Yeah, the last time I did it, I I ended up seeing myself with a full beard and, you know, I stepped away. It was like, whoa, (laughs) the the full beard got to me. (laughs) Yeah, it was very gnarly. (laughs) Well, and you go, wow, I wouldn't have made that up. Nope, I wouldn't have chosen that one. Um, But what was cool was it felt like it was a prospector, someone who was looking for treasure and gold and things like that. And and so, you know, it made it a little more palatable after I got into it. But I had to go back a couple of times because it it really was like, oh, that can't be me. (laughs) Yeah. And and like you said, it's not something I would imagine. (laughs) You know, I just love, when I do an initial session for someone, I always start with the past lives because we really are a sum total of all that we have been. And it really helps us to understand who we are, why do we have the attractions we have, why are we afraid of the things we're afraid of. By looking at the past life stories, you really deeply start to understand yourself and your strengths and weaknesses and those that you're in relationship with. And just looking at a life from the current incarnation does not give us enough information. You know, I love, um, you know, the story of my son. When he was a little boy, he always wanted me to read a couple of over and over and over again. And, And they were... Minglo moves the mountain and everyone knows what the dragon looks like. And he just wanted to hear it over and over again. And then, you know, anything having to do with China, he just wanted to experience over and over again. And, and then he learned Chinese and now he lives in China. And, you know, that's because he's got a lot of past life history there. And so when you see the past lives, you see, you know, little children age, you know, three. The stories that they're drawn to will tell you what their past lives were. (laughs) You know, my daughter, or what did they want to be for Halloween? You know, my daughter always Mm -hmm. wanted to be a gypsy, you know, and my son always wanted to be, uh, you know, a world traveler. You know, it's, it's, it's there from the blueprints there in all of us. Oh, absolutely. Right from the get-go. I tell people that that um, that if the, if they want to know what what gifts and talents they have, it it's usually very very right on right on the the surface when they're very young, and the things that they want to do or the things that they become involved in are 
are gifts and talents they've brought from past lives so that if they follow those inclinations, their life could be very much richer because, because those are going to be things that, that come easily to them. And um, I, I, you know, I like to paint doilies and stuff like, like that when I was four five and six. And, and I ended up painting Mandela's for hundreds and hundreds of people. And, um, I collected rocks and later in life I got involved in um, megaliths and, and uh, stone chambers and stone walls and things like that. And it, it, it's, it's, I wish people today when they have the young children who are just beginning to develop and, and, you know, they, they're expressing interest in things. I wish they pay more attention to them because if, if those areas and elements were encouraged, their lives could become so much richer and I'm not necessarily saying monetarily, but, but in expression and in joy and, and in, um, in many ways success. Yes, exactly. And there's another example of the importance of deep listening, right? To be able to listen deeply to others. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, I have two grandchildren and I just, I have loved watching them grow up and, and, you know, their parents, you know, while, while, while they may not be metaphysically as oriented as I am, they at least listen to the kids and, and what they're interested in. And they followed up on the, the, the things that they wanted to, to learn about and wanted to grow into. And I think, I think children become very much better rounded as individuals um, when when they are encouraged in in those desires, so long as they're not, you know, like like I want to learn to load a semi-automatic because I was a soldier in my past life. I'm not talking about stuff like that, but um, there may be kids out there though that that have incarnated that were um, soldiers or mercenaries or whatever. But in my experience, I have found that. The things that people have done, you know, at, at, when they were three, four, and five years old are, 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 are things to pay attention to. Because yes, that's those been are, my experience, too. You know, it's just, it's just sort of like every now and then somebody says, oh, I wish I had a hobby, and I don't have a hobby. And it's like, what were you fascinated with as a child? What are the things, you know, talk to your mom, and hopefully mom is still alive. And, and, you know, sometimes it's, it's, you know, cooking, sometimes it's gardening, sometimes it's drawing, painting or writing, whatever it is. Um, I recently found um, a book I wrote as a five-year-old and I illustrated it too. And, and my mother <laughs> saved it. And my mother saved it. And, and trust me, it's not going up on Amazon, but but writing has always been a love of mine and it's always been something that I have been drawn to. And when I saw that at five years old, I was writing books and publishing them myself. Um, it, it was kind of like, of course, this is something that I came in with a lust for. doesn't say it was a, it wasn't a great book, but, but um, I dictated it to my mother who wrote it out. But, but I mean, it's, it's an area that, that I took joy in and that I had um, a passion for. And 
it has followed me through life. And if I look back in my, in my lifetime, I have always fallen back on writing because that flows easily for me. And that is a place where my crown chakra is open and it just gushes. And mm. if you pay attention to that, if, if, you know, I, I, I highly encourage everyone to go back and figure out just what was it early on that, that I had a passion for, that I had a love for, that I had a desire for. And chances are in, in early childhood, you, you gave, you gave every indication of where your talents and gifts were. And if a parent is paying attention, they can help you to follow on those and, 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 you know, enrich them further. I mean, look at, look at, um, child prodigies who come in at four years old, they're playing Mozart and all of this stuff has to be past life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would think. Absolutely. Um, you, mm-hmm. you make another, you made another statement and I want to get to it before we run out of time here, nurturing an attitude of newness in order to clear away our distorted perceptions. Yes. There's a part of the chapter where I focus on newness and it's a, it's a concept that was taught to me that every moment, every, every moment is new, every day is new, every month is new, every year is new, that we live in constant change. And when we affirm that it's a new day, then we can start to perceive the nuances and the changes of life. And all too often per- people perceive an oldness. They, they hold other people in an image of how they behaved before, which mm-hmm. contributes to locking them into old behavior. You know, we tend to say, oh, this is a lazy person or this is a smart person or this is a stupid person. And we box people in oldness. So newness is, it's a very generous attitude for one. It recognizes that everyone is changing. Everyone has the potential to evolve and to learn. And so when you meet someone that you've known for a long time and you greet them in the attitude of newness, then you're curious to how they've changed and how they've moved and how they've evolved rather than assuming you already know them. That's one part. The other, I, I have people do an exercise where I have them imagine going home, whether that means driving home or walking home or taking the, you know, subway home. And I have them visualize themselves going home and then they get home and how do they perceive where they live And then I have them go home affirming I am filled with newness. And when people compare those two perceptions, they find that the oldness or the old way of perceiving has a tendency of focusing on the negative. You know, the house needs work, it's not clean enough, or where newness has a quality of adventure, it has a quality of yes, oh, I can do this, but it's not a sense of drudge. And so it's just an example that the attitude we hold as we go through our experiences has a significant impact. 
And so the attitude of newness really infuses uh, greater clarity, greater appreciation, and it keeps us from getting stale. You know, some people go shopping too much because they desire to feel newness. And when you cultivate the attitude of newness, you can save a lot of money. Yeah, I never thought of that that way. I, I, can, mm-hmm. I can see also where if your perception, if your attitude is one of newness, whoever you meet, whether it's an old friend or, or new, will feel the interest that is there and will rise to the occasion. It, it's, I think it's catching I think if, yes. if, if, especially if, if you're, if you're working with people, if suddenly, you know, someone that you have lunch with every, every day, if you, if you're suddenly looking at them like, God, what's new here? There's an excitement that they feel and react to. Yes, that's certainly true because our attitudes affect those around us. It reminds me of, the obstetrician that caught my daughter when she was born and she was an older woman who had, you know, caught many children. And she said, I go into each birth as if it's my first. And then I feel the, um, the miracle of it. And that's just a wonderful way of saying she cultivated the attitude of newness. So it didn't get stale. Oh, another birth, you know, but another (laughs) miracle, another special moment. And so when we cultivate the attitude of newness, I'm going home anew, then there's just so much more appreciation in daily life. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think also, acknowledging the fact that that every encounter with every person, there's something that each can share with the other that is new, that is, you know, there's something I can learn from everybody that I talk to. And, and, you know, there's, there's a a reciprocity there, you know, um, it's a given and it's a take. It's not a, I'm going to teach you this, or I'm going to, you know, it, it's kind of like what what exciting new thing is going to come out of this? I, that's why I love these radio shows. I learn so much from these from from you guys that I talk to. It's just it's so cool, and and it, it helps. <laughs> it, well, it, it helps to expand what I can then turn around and share with other people. So it's it's one of the the. The neatest thing somebody said, well, what do you do for work? And I, and I have to admit, I don't work. I play. And, and that's what, that's what life should be. It, it, I mean, and not frivolous, but, but learning is play if you approach it appropriately. Now, not going to say that about trigonometry, but for the most part, learning is fun. And and it, it's again my, my perception. I, I I didn't pass trig. No, wait, I passed trig. I didn't I didn't pass calculus. Um, so so it's 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 really your book is an exciting book. I I you you go into the the TED Tech as which is which is definitely um, an interesting experience. You you do. Um, in the book, you there is a place um, 
where where you walk people through the whole process and it's it's easy but it's so easy people may perceive it as not being effective and that's just so not true um you make it easy for people I, to do i think i would say I think I would say it's simple, but it's not always easy because, again, it's like building a muscle and Mm -hmm. depending how strong that muscle is for people, for some people, they get it right away and Mm -hmm. for other people, they have to work at it. And, you know, it takes practice. I have some students who have worked with me for 25 years consistently and what they find is they're in the third eye most of the time, but then there are the times where it's really hard, and um, and that has to do with the, with the circumstances where they are attached to the results, mm-hmm. and then they lose their objectivity. Ah, that's true. That's true. Well, I want to... Before before we go too much further, um, I want to put. Do you have a website out there? I I, I don't see. I do. I have one here. Okay. It's it's quite simple. It's simply ellentad.com, and my last name is spelled with two D's. T A D D. Ellentad.com. Okay, because. Um, and, and your books are on Amazon, and, and they're also on my website on the um, I Highly Recommend page. Um, I, I just um, – now, your, your daughter, let's put a plug in for her, too. She, she has a Ph.D. focused on bringing astrology back into credibility and also as a tool for parenting. And her website is – her, yes. her website is Mythic Sky. Okay. Yes. And she just actually gave a talk in Chicago about astrology as a tool for parenting. And it's really an incredible tool. Um, When she was going through school, she worked as a nanny and she worked a lot with young children. And, and as she studied astrology, um, really saw firsthand that you know, every child's chart is different. And that means that the way you parent each child needs to be different. And having the chart is really an incredible advantage to understand, you know, how does your child's mind work? Well, if their Mercury is in Pisces, they have a psychic mind. If their Mercury is in Taurus, they'll do their homework better if their uh, study environment is pretty. If their uh, Mercury is in Gemini, they're going to want to talk a lot and helping them learn to write will be particularly beneficial. So it's just a wonderful tool to understand your child, to understand differences, and to be able to um, support them as best as possible. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I um <clears throat> I'm not an astrologer, but I certainly, uh, you know, endorse it wholeheartedly. And as a school teacher um, for for those many, many, many years, it 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 works. It is something, you know. Don't don't be a fanatic, but um, it, it does give you hints as to different ways to approach a learning situation. Everybody is different, and. I think that's one of my biggest, 
my issues with the, the school system today. Um, there's a syllabus. There's, you know, everybody has to learn the same thing. So the people teach to, to tests. And instead of recognizing this is a mind that wants to learn and how best to get through to them so, so they can gather the information that they need in order to combat whatever challenges they have um, set up for themselves. And uh, it's, it's, every kid learns differently. We're all wired differently. Yes. And education yes. should be adjusted to that. And when, um, when we don't always have control over the school environment, at least helping parents make adjustments at home that can help mitigate some of the aspects uh, in school that aren't ideal. Absolutely. Well, and parents are, are, have always been and will always continue to be um, a major part of somebody's education. And, and I think too often parents figure the school's going to do it, so why should I bother? And that's just parents are supposed to teach, <laughs> in my opinion. Absolutely, yes. I agree. I, I just it doesn't can't matter how, how old your kids are, the teaching keeps going. Oh, it does. It does. It does. I, I, I want to thank you so much. I, I, I know I had to shift you around and I thank you so much for being so patient and cooperative about moving the show to, uh, to Saturday. I, I so appreciate your um, taking the time to share your information. And um, I, I really, is there any last thing you'd like to make sure you get out there so that, so that the information is on the ether? Um, well, let me just say thank you, Barb, for um, for endorsing my book and talking to me about these ideas. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I just want to close by saying that we all are living in a challenging time. And that's where uh, developing discipline, the discipline of basic um, tools that help us in our body and our mind and our spirit, our disciplines give us stability in the midst of the storm. It's like the root that keeps the tree from blowing over. My mm -hmm. guides say when you're having a hard time, go back to basics. And what that really means is go back to the disciplines, go back to eating well, exercising, getting enough sleep, meditation, use of the third eye, positive affirmative attitudes, really take the time to develop these fundamental disciplines because we are in challenging times and each of us will find a greater sense of internal stability if we do. That's, that's beautifully put. I mean, just remember your roots. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, um, and, and I think the other important thing is you have the tools, you know, the tools are out there for you. You have the wisdom in you and, and certainly Ellen's book helps to give you the tools to cross that bridge. So I, I do you. thank you. Oh, I thank you so much for being here. And, um, for those of you listening, um, this will be up on YouTube later on this afternoon. And if you've missed a part of it, you'll be able to catch up on it there. 
and also on my website it'll be up so i look forward to um to your next oh is there a next book there is i've started it it's called a framework for wise education and as as i mentioned it's how my understanding of the chakra system can be used in education and in parenting to help children. Well, I look forward to your finishing it. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. It appears appears that it will be right up my alley and, and your previous book, um, which I'm looking for the title fast. So I have, I have, uh, a book that's called The Wisdom of the Chakras, Tools for Navigating the Complexity of Life. And then my first book was called Death and Letting Go. And it's a book to help people through their fear of death and also to help them understand the fundamentals they need to know to have the transition into spirit or the transition of loved ones into spirit to be a positive and smooth experience. Always an important thing, you know. You kind of, I, I think I, I, my late husband um, had that kind of a, a positive approach to it, and it was it was really um, quite a beautiful experience. And it's important to to gather these tools and understandings, you know, before that happens. <laughs> uh, exactly. You know, so. Yes, so not, we'll not, be prepared. Not, not three, yeah, not three days before passing. That's a bad time to start this process. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, there are better times to do it. Certainly, anytime you get the information is a good one. Thank you so much again. I so appreciate your being here. They're going to cut me off real fast here, so I want to say goodbye okay. and all right, and thank goodbye. you so and thank very you. very much. Thank you. Bye bye now. Bye bye. My pleasure. <laughs> 